If you had the chance to rebuild or restart a community, what would you do? In, uh, in 1980, one small town in Georgia woke up to see the erection of a monument dedicated to just that idea. The site was deemed America's Stonehenge as this huge 19-foot vertical slab or four vertical slabs of local granite were raised to sit in this ominous circle. It's called the, the Georgia Guidestones. Maybe you've heard of them before. Its benefactor had stayed anonymous even to this day as the construction was hired out through shell corporations and, and a lot of anonymity going on. The monument gave uh, detailed directions on, on how to use the stones as a compass, a clock, and a calendar. But the whole point of the placement was that etched on its face were ten principles of how to restart civilization after a cataclysmic event. That is interesting. When the world falls apart, I'm going to go to a small town in Georgia to figure out how to, how to bring it all back, I guess. Eight different languages across these four slabs have the exact same ten principles. I'm not going to read those ten principles because there's nothing prolific in the text, just a lot of seek peace, leave room for nature is mentioned a number of times. So if you're wanting to rebuild civilization, leave room for nature, whatever that means. The rock's principles do boast a pretty troublesome view of controlling population and reproduction, so I don't think we ought to follow them anyway. But the only reason that you may have heard of this strange structure that was just standing out in some random Georgian field is because last year someone bombed the site, <laughs> causing these rocks, which were meant to guide humanity into the reconstruction of civilization after the apocalypse, to crumble. Now that's, that's irony, if you, if you ask me. How would you build back a community, though? I probably wouldn't use many of the, the ten principles listed there. If you ask city planners, they'd probably list off a few pertinent necessities about infrastructure and welfare, agriculture, commerce, economic policies, manufacturing development, all that kinds of stuff that would put me to sleep in a heartbeat. They're needed for society to thrive. But I think I'd prefer what the settlers of the Washwoods community in Virginia did. Um, I grew up in Virginia Beach, and I've told you before about this community. After a, a pretty bland day of surfing when I was in high school, some friends and I, we, we wandered over to the wildlife reserve just across from our favorite surf spot. And after a bit of a hike, we learned the history of this area that's called False Cape. It's now False Cape State Park. This remote region was settled in the 1800s when a, a schooner wrecked off the coast there of this beach, causing all of the passengers to have to swim to shore. Not one was lost to the best of the records that we found, um, but they all had to swim to the shore. After several days of survival, the group finally decided, because this was such a remote area, that they were going to put down roots and settle here. So when the storm finally passed, after about a week's time, several of the men swam out to the wreckage of their ship, to salvage as much of it as they possibly could. They ended up heaving in a bunch of ship's lumber, and uh, they'd use that for the building materials for the buildings that they were going to instate there in the Washwoods community. You want to guess what the first building that they built was? It was a church. In fact, the building has long been reduced to nothing. You've got a picture of what it did look like on the screen that was taken back in the 20s, I believe, or the, the 30s, uh, and some, some pretty, pretty old technology there. Um, 
It's been reduced to nothing um, because of the storms, but the steeple of the church, built out of the lumber of the ship, can still be seen. Think of that. To build a civilization, to build a community, the church. That's the first thing. I'm sure that there are some secularists who would lean into the community aspect of building a church. Yeah, we, we need a place for everybody to gather, first and foremost. But the truth of the matter is, is that it shows a people's dedication to God. They're gathering in worship of Him. And that's essentially what we have here in Ezra chapter 3. To catch you up to speed, the Jews have been released from their Babylonian captivity. For decades, they have been held hostage, and now they have the opportunity to return home. Go back to their hometown of Jerusalem. This is the land flowing with milk and honey. This is called the promised land, specially given to them by God, except when they get there, it looks like none of those things. There's around 50,000 refugees. They show up to this place that they have longed to see, and it is a ruin. There are piles of rock. They're heaped up everywhere, but not one laid upon the other in any kind of orderly fashion. It's desolate. There are broken down walls. There's barely distinguishable buildings toppled over. I'm sure that the, the Babylonian ghettos looked more appealing than what was laying in front of them when they arrived at the promised land. I haven't even mentioned the temple, the center of life for the Hebrews, the place where God truly came down and met with them. That site was a trash heap. Nothing, not one rock laid upon the other. I'm not quite sure of what the words should be to describe the situation. Disappointment, it's not strong enough but I don't have a good enough vocabulary and I couldn't find a better word in the thesaurus, disappointment. They knew that they were going to have to rebuild. I'm sure that they did. None of them signed up. None of the pioneers headed west to, to see. They knew that they were going to have to rebuild. But this is on a whole other level. I mean, the last glimpse of Jerusalem from the captives years ago all they saw was a, a burning, demolished heap. But I believe this was coming back home. It was probably too much for them. So they kind of shuffle off despondently to their respective plots of land. We see that in chapter 3, verse 1. But now it's the seventh month. We don't get that in our modern culture. Seventh month isn't anything special to us. But to the Jews, the seventh month was like a holy month for them. You've got a couple of festivals, specifically the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. You've got the Feast of Tabernacles or Sukkot, each of which required them to come to Jerusalem to congregate from wherever they had been, what other, what other regions they might have settled, whatever homes they might have built elsewhere. They were called to come back to Jerusalem together as one. And that's exactly what we see here happening in these verses. And when the seventh month had come, this is like September, October on our calendar, the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered together as one man to Jerusalem. Then Joshua, or Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren, the priests, and Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and his brethren arose and built the altar of God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. 
Though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord. Both morning and evening burnt offerings. What's their first act as a nation? What's the first thing they do collectively? They rebuild the altar. Get the picture here. Zerubbabel surveys the ruins. He locates where the temple should be among all the buildings. They clear the site. Jeshua the priest, he paces out exactly where the altar ought to be if the temple were still standing. And they begin to build an altar. What's the significance of an altar? Um, What goes on here? In our Western minds, we might think of like the front of the sanctuary as an altar. I grew up in a church that actually had called morning benches for people to come down to at the end of service. It was called an altar call where you would come at the end of the service and you would pray for a few minutes over a certain need that you might have. Sometimes we think of that being an altar. The temple's altar really couldn't be more different. That's pretty and clean. The temple's altar was a place of sacrifice. And I understand the poetic part of what an altar in our modern day churches ought to be. But an Old Testament altar, this is where God's people would bring their offerings of animals, where they would slit the throats of the creature that they had raised in their homes, and they would offer it up as a burnt offering for their sin. In Exodus 29, God had told Moses and his people that he would meet with them in this place so long as they continued to sacrifice sincerely to him. Now, all of that might sound a little bit too mystical, a little bit too archaic, too weird to our modern ears. Sacrificing animals to, a, to appease a God for our sin. It's, it's out there. I, I'll give you that. But it is good to remember for us sitting here today that the death of these animals was never supposed to be the end goal. They were mere shadows of a thing to come. It was always these sacrifices. They were always a picture of what Jesus would do for us on the cross. The author of Hebrews, he lays it out most plainly in Hebrews 10.8 when Jesus previously said, sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin, you do not desire God, nor had pleasure in them which are offered according to the law. Then Jesus said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ for once all. The sacrificial system was a parable of Jesus on the cross. When the Jews didn't sacrifice on the altar, they were essentially saying, I'm okay with my sin. I don't need anybody or anything to die my sin it's not that big of a deal that was disobedience to the lord and it was being disloyal to what he was going to do in taking away their sin on the cross obedience was a necessity and it is a necessity for all of us 
I think enough of us parents know that obedience isn't everything. Say, I don't know, Corey. At my house, obedience is a pretty big deal. But with obedience with our children, we also want sincerity, don't we? Sincere obedience is important. If you don't have sincerity with obedience, that's not proof of a relationship. That's slavery. Got to do what I got to do because I got to do it. Sincerity and obedience, that's where we have a good parent-child relationship. That's what is intended for the people of God to have a communion or to have a relationship with, God, with the Lord. Sincere obedience. That's important because there were seasons among the Jews where they just went through the motions. They would acknowledge the religious festivals. They would sacrifice the animals. They would obey. They would do all the stuff that they were told to do in the law, but they didn't do it sincerely. Just going through the motions. This is where they had gotten before the exile. The prophet Isaiah, he writes extensively about this kind of thing. He records what the Lord said in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11. The Lord is speaking here. To what purpose is the multitude of your sacrifices to me? What is all this for? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Bring, verse 13, bring no more futile sacrifices. Incense, it's an abomination to me. The new moons, the Sabbaths, the festivals, all the calling of the assemblies, I cannot endure the iniquity and the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, hear this, my soul hates. They are trouble to me. I'm weary of bearing them. Those are really strong words. It might not fall strong on us today, but these are really strong words for a strong-necked people merely going through the motions of their religion. Let me put it in our vernacular. 2023, can I modernize Isaiah 1, 11-14? I hate your church attendance. I hate it. The money you give to the church makes me sick. I am tired of hearing you mumble lyrics to hymns you do not mean. Ooh. These are strong words. For years, the people of God had just gone through the motions, making light of the sacrificial system which was meant to focus them on Jesus' one-day death for them. Then they were cursed not to be able to sacrifice at all when they were in captivity, but now they've returned to Jerusalem, rock piles of wreckage heaped all around them. Now they worship truly. This is real. This is legit. They obey and they obey sincerely. You see that in verse 3. How do I know that this is sincere obedience? Because verse 3 tells us, though fear had come upon them because of the people of those countries around them, they set the altar on its bases and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening burnt offerings. Did you hear that? The, 
the surrounding non-Jewish people that were encompassing them, they were not happy that the Hebrews had returned to Jerusalem. This has been, Jerusalem had been their plunder site. For years, they had come in and stolen from those who had been left. And now that resource, if we could even call it that, had been cut off. Add to that that it has to be going through their minds that if the Jews returned to their former glory just by a percentage of what it was like under David and Solomon's reign, they didn't didn't stand a chance. There'd be a, a new kid on the block, actually an old kid come back to the old neighborhood and they, they wouldn't be able to do what they wanted anymore. So they're not happy about Cyrus's decree to let the Jews come back in. And I think that rumors begin to stir about how they're going to do something about it. So the people of God respond to this fear. And they gather in one place. Now, I'm not a military strategist. Not by a long shot. But this is not a very good strategy if you're worried about other cities, other nations coming in to attack you. Hey, let's, all, let's put all of our eggs in one basket, as it were. Let's all come to one place so that in one fell swoop, they can destroy us all. This is not a good military strategy. Add to that, they lit a fire and they continually burned sacrifices on it. Okay, look guys, if you're going to gather in one spot, let's not give away our position and just let smoke continuously billow from this one singular location where we all are. Now, Ezra 3.4 records that they also kept the Feast of the Tabernacles. <laughs> Essentially, what this means is that they hold to this festival where the Jews left whatever homes they might have had for a week and they lived in tents or booths, tabernacles. It was meant to remind them of what their forefathers lived in during the wilderness time before they came to the promised land. But you can imagine having a home with walls and choosing to live under a tent made out of palm branches. And this whole situation is going on while they are scared to death that their neighbors are going to attack them. We put video cameras on every corner of our home. We deadbolt our deadbolts today. We don't have any understanding of what they're scared of invaders. And they say, let's live outside our homes, in tents, all together, and let's continually burn a fire. Let's do this. This is obedience. This is sincerity. Here's a side question. I wonder what the Lord might have to do in your life to get you to a place of sincere obedience. Here they are. They are standing in the rubble, scared, sacrificing out of the scarcity of their lives. And I think you'll agree that there is so much more going on here And when they had the beautiful temple, all of the wealth of all the nations, they had the heaps of sacrifices offered out of plenty. I wonder what might have to happen, what might have to happen in your life for it to be broken all down 
for you to finally worship obediently, sincerely. That's what it had come to. There's a hymnodist named E.A. Hoffman. He's not one of those that we're very familiar with. Well, actually him. We, we are familiar with his songs. Throughout his 90 years of life and ministry, he wrote more than 2,000 gospel songs. He saw firsthand the horrors of the Civil War. He was an enlisted man, and it was while he was fighting that he purposed in his heart that he would make his life count for Christ if he survived the melee. And he did. He survived. And he also made good on his promise to the Lord. Throughout his, uh, I believe it was, I think he got out when he was like 21 or so, throughout the, the 70 years left of his life, he served in small chapels the majority of his life, specifically among those who were piecing together their lives after the, the Civil War during that confusing Reconstruction era. He even at one point ran a home ministry. He would bring people in, returning sailors. And there he saw these men who were battling to get their lives together after the post-traumatic stress of war and the alcohol that many of them had turned to having lost friends, and many of them their family, and all of it. That kind of ministry, serving among the most oppressed, it produced some powerful songs that we still sing today. You know them. Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. That's Hoffman. What a wonderful Savior. Hoffman. Are you washed in the blood? Hoffman. I must tell Jesus all of my sorrows. Hoffman. Growing up, I remember one of his songs. It was a standard at the end of our church service during that altar call. It's actually in our hymn books, number 488. It reads, You have longed for sweet peace and for faith to increase and have earnestly, fervently prayed, but you cannot have rest or be perfectly blessed until all on the altar is laid. Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart does the Spirit control? You can only be blessed and have peace and sweet rest as you yield Him your body and soul. How would you respond to desolation, to being scared, when life isn't turning out the way that you thought it would, when, when you're standing in the rubble of your life and you're trying to piece it all back together? How would you respond? These believers in Ezra 3, they responded with, we need to build the altar. Sincere obedience. For the first time, I think, in any of their lives, I will do what God has called me to do. And by laying these animals on the altar, essentially what they were doing is they were laying their lives on the altar. Lord, whatever you want in my life, do it. How do you respond during trouble, during these scared times? The woman named Corey Ten Boom, 
I'm sure you've heard of her. She spoke extensively throughout the world after she was released from a Nazi concentration camp in 1944. She once wrote that following that harrowing nine-month stint in Ravensbrück, she battled intense fear. Intense fear. Modern-day psychologists would, would more than likely have diagnosed her with PTSD, as anybody coming out of a concentration camp, I'm sure, would have been. The smallest thing she wrote would the smallest thing out of her control, it would set off absolute horror in her life. Loud noises, a canceled flight, riding a car too fast. She had to find a way to cope. Had to. She knew the Sunday school answer, right? (laughs) Just pray. Pray through. Pray through. And so she did. But she writes that there was a very interesting thing that happened. The more she prayed, Lord, help me not to be afraid, the more she just kept thinking, about her fear. (laughs) And so she began to pray outwardly, as she wrote. She'd begin to pray for others. She'd pray for anyone. Any name that popped up into her mind from childhood schoolmates to fellow survivors to missionaries to family members, even when she didn't know them by name, she would pray through faces, (laughs) taxi drivers that she had had, people she had met in her meetings, people on the street that she was passing by while she was riding in a car. But ultimately, as you can imagine, she would run out of names and faces to pray for. And that's when she would do it. No matter where she was, no matter who was around her, it didn't matter any of the circumstances. Whenever that fear would begin to rise up in her, do you know what she would do? She would sing. She'd sing every verse of every hymn that she could remember. Not just hum quietly to herself, but she would belt it out. I believe that's what's going on in Ezra 3 here. Maybe not intentionally, but God's people are realizing their need to worship the Lord. It supersedes everything else. Personal financial advancement, building their own homes, even their own national safety. Hang all of that. We have to obey the Lord sincerely so they sing. They worship the Lord obediently and sincerely. In fact, Ezra 3 looks very similar to one of our modern-day church services because not only do they worship through praying and singing, but they also give, as I mentioned earlier. In verse 6, it says, From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, although the foundation of the temple of the Lord had not been laid. They also gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre to bring cedar logs from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa, according to the permission which they had from Cyrus, the king of Persia. Their first and primary goal in returning Jerusalem to Jerusalem as commissioned by Cyrus was to rebuild the temple. And so they were to replace what had been destroyed so that God would once again take up residence among His people. Cyrus had given them a, a financial grant or an allowance, I guess you could say, but the people of God wanted to be so involved with the work that they too began to give. Verses 8 through 9 detail what I think would be a very interesting building project. I've never led through one. I've never lived through one. But a building project for the people of God. It included skilled craftsmen and laborers under the supervision of Levites. Now, I'm probably making too much of this, 
But in my imagination, all I can see is a bunch of hardworking construction workers trying to build as quickly as they possibly can. You know, time is money kind of guys. Get the job done. We've got deadlines. We've got to have progress report meetings. You know, all you guys who work in construction, Will, you can think about this. Victor, I'm sure you can understand this. Get this done. And then they have these overseers. They are not laborers. They are not skilled craftsmen. These are Levites. They are, they, are, they are out there in the construction site robed with these like elaborate gowns. They have the scroll of Scripture unfurled and they are checking every span and cubit, every stone hewn out for specifications. Every block must be laid out exactly to specs as God had laid out in His Word. It's a wonder that these two did not kill each other, the construction workers and the Levites, but it seems like the two groups, they work harmoniously Hand in hand. Finally, the footers are dug. The foundation is laid. I'm sure the builders are chomping at the bit to get more work done with the daylight that they have left. And the priests and the Levites, they make a call to do something out of the ordinary. Stop construction. When they have finished the foundation of the temple, they realize how momentous an occasion this is. So verse 10 tells us that when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets. And the Levites, the sons of Asaph, authors of many of our psalms, they stood with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively. Praising and giving thanks to the Lord. And they sang, For He is good, for His mercy endures forever toward Israel. Then all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. I want you to get this picture in your mind. The responsive singing in verse 11, it puts our responsive reading to shame this morning. Don't worry, it would have any congregation. <laughs> Not just Brother Terry leading you all together. This is what's called antiphonal singing. Repetitive singing. Chanting and repeats. It's probably more akin to cheering than what we think of as congregational singing. In 2014, 76,000 Kansas City Chiefs, the, the Kansas City Chiefs fans broke records for how loud they got. They scored a 142.2 decibels that is as loud as a jet engine actually registering seismic activity on the Richter scale, and they were able to be heard two miles away. That is without any kind of amplification. Well, in our text here in, in Ezra 3, verse 13 tells us that about 50,000 Israelites could be heard from afar off. Obviously, we don't know the decibel level or the seismic activity of the event, but it was life-changing for everyone who's in attendance. They are praising God. They are antiphonally singing, for He is good, for He is good, for His mercy endures, for His mercy endures, forever, forever. They are shouting great shouts of praise. It is life-changing for everyone, except a few. Something's amiss. Verse 12 says, many of the priests, the Levites, the elders of the father's houses, old men, who'd seen the first temple, they wept 
with a loud voice when the foundation of this temple was laid before their eyes. Yet many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. This is disappointment. Everything that we had come back to to build the temple of God so that God could take up residence here, it's smaller. After months of labor, offerings of thousands of dollars, providential planning, miraculous provision, the reinstatement of worship in Israel, the older Greek group, the men who saw the glory of the first temple, Solomon's temple, they wailed as everyone cheered. Haggai would write in his record that it seemed like nothing compared to the former temple. One Jewish historian recorded that it was, it was much smaller and less adorned, although it sat in the exact same place, which made it feel all the more small. I'm sure that the building didn't compare to the nostalgia that the older men had in their memories, but I think that their tears were caused by more than just a mismanaged architectural expectations. I think there's more going on here than, oh man, it's not like what it used to be. I like to give them the benefit of the doubt. I think there's a healthy dose of, this is our fault. It's our disobedience which led to the tearing down of the old temple. We were the ones We're the ones responsible because we did not serve the Lord sincerely and obediently. Our children are excited over this. When we had this, I'm to blame. Our children will never have what we took for granted, what we wasted. John Wesley is attributed with the saying, what one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. That is a deep, deep saying that could be applied to so many aspects of life. But let me just take it generically. He outlines a slow fade from one generation to the next until what once had been accepted is now rejected by the next. While the line would come some 2,000 years after the events of Ezra 3, I believe that is the part where the elders, why they are sorrowing over it all. What one generation tolerates. Who cares if we sacrifice? And if we do, who cares if our heart's in it? We just go through the motions. What one generation tolerates, the next generation will embrace. I want you to hear me. Do not let this happen to you. Build the altar. Make Christ a priority in your life. I am begging of you. I go too quickly to this sometimes, but it needs to be heralded every time. If not for you, then for your children. The first thing they do is build the altar. Make the worship of the Lord 
first and foremost in your life. We are talking about obedient, sincere worship. Is your all on the altar? Is your all on the altar of sacrifice laid? Your heart, does the Spirit control? You can only be blessed. Only be blessed. And have peace and sweet rest as you yield Him your body and soul. Dads, I'm talking to you. I really am. There's a reason over and over and over again in Ezra 3. It talks about the heads of the houses. They made light of the temple. They made light of the sacrifice until it was no more. This ought to have been a joyous occasion, yet there is weeping from the grandparents because they realized what they had lost. I want this to sit heavy with us. They've built the foundation. Everything's in order. What do you think is going to happen in Ezra 4? Will they build? Will they complete the task? Will they continue to have the Lord as the priority of their life? It doesn't matter what they do. It matters what you do. Thanks for listening to New Hope Church's podcast. If you would like to listen to more content from our church, follow us at newhopefwbc.com.